grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Almighty God, you are the author and the foundation of our hope. Enable us to rely with confident expectation upon your promises that we receive from your word, knowing that the trials and hindrances of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed. And having our faces steadfastly set toward the light that shines more and more to the perfect day that comes through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn is number 316, The Mighty God, the Lord. The scriptures teach that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Let us then humbly confess our sin, bow our heads before the Lord, and confess our sin. Let us pray. Almighty and most holy Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the plans and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. 
and we have done those things which we ought not to have done. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore those who are penitent according to your promises declared to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, that we might hereafter live a godly and righteous life to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that free from sin we might live for righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. I declare to you as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ that all those who have faith in him and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. Let us say together, praise be to God. Holy people in Christ, God created us male and female and gave us marriage so that husband and wife may help and comfort each other living faithfully together in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, in sickness and in health throughout all their days. God gave us marriage for the full expression of the love between a man and a woman. In marriage, a woman and a man belong to each other and with affection and tenderness freely give themselves to each other. God gave us marriage for the well-being of human society. It is not just simply for our own personal benefit or the benefit of the couple involved, but it is also for the well-being of society. It's for the ordering of family life and for the birth and nurture of children. God gave us marriage as a holy mystery in which a man and a woman are joined together and become one, just as Christ is one with the church. In marriage, husband and wife are called to a new way of life, created, ordered, and blessed by God. We rejoice that marriage is given by God. It is not just something constructed by humankind. Therefore, let us remember our vows and let marriage be held in honor by us all. And if you're not married, that is fine. Marriage is not, not everyone is called into the vocation and life of marriage. God has also given us the ability to live a life that is celibate for him. And that may be, at least for a time, maybe for your whole life, the calling for you. But in either case, whatever our position in life, we are to honor and uphold marriage. And I don't need to tell you about how our society is quickly unraveling these things. Um, Just going back to the point about God created us male and female, it's important to understand that at the root of who we are as people is our humanity. God made man in his own image, and that man there is referring to humanity in general, our, our, our humanness. And then it specifies the gender. So fundamental to who we are is our humanity. And if we have to encounter somebody or if we do encounter people who are confused about their gender and doing all the transitioning and all that kind of thing, let us remember we're to treat them as human beings and then relate to them according to their true gender. But at the root of it is, and this is what our society is doing, is it's flipping everything and saying that at the heart of who we are is our gender, our sexuality. And it's not that. It's at the root of it is our humanity. And so we are to treat people, even who are horribly confused and who might be pushy about their transitioning, treat them as a human being, and then you have to negotiate how you're going to relate to them according to their true gender, what they really are. Um, But that is what God has created for us, and let's be aware and mindful of our society that is rapidly trying to re-educate us on that. 
God's word rises above the plans and intentions of humankind, and so we are to follow his word above whatever our society is, is trying to teach us. This is God's will for us in Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is number 353, I Love Thy Kingdom, Lord. Please join me in prayer for those in need. Almighty and merciful Father, we had eyes and could not see and ears and could not hear, but with your Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, you have opened our eyes and our ears. We see your mercy and kindness to us. You have sent us help when we were in trouble. You've given us rest and refreshment when we were tired. You've comforted our hearts and minds with your gracious word. You've brought us friends when we felt alone. And we perceive that these are gifts from you, and we give you thanks for them. Oh, Father, we also see the faithlessness in this world, the sin and immaturity in the church and the suffering of the nations. We ask you to bring a speedy and just end to the conflict with Ukraine for peace between Israel and Palestine that you would hold back Iran and China and North Korea in their belligerence, 
We also pray for the de-escalation of violence in our own cities and the management of our borders. Hear our prayers for the nations in turmoil in this world. For those who ignore you and live like they do not depend upon you, we pray that they would know Christ, his sacrifice of himself for our salvation, and in humility they would praise him. We pray that we would be given the grace to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to them in word and deed so that more people might confess faith in him and be joined with your church. We also pray for our Jewish neighbors around the church here in these neighborhoods that we might know them better and have meaningful discussions about the salvation that you have accomplished. Here are prayers for those who do not know Christ. For the political affairs of this country, we pray that just and fair laws would be made to bring justice and uphold what is morally right. Help us to obey your word and show honor to whoever our elected officials are. And we pray that the lust for power would not make our leaders overbearing. We pray that freedom for your church would remain intact. We pray also that you would make the church's voice be heard as it bears witness to what being human is in the light of your creation and redemption. Here are our prayers for our nation. For other churches in our presbytery or in our denomination and for our missionaries, we pray for them. We pray for Pilgrim OPC as their pastor David and their pastor, David Bonner, and we pray for Community OPC in Kalamazoo and their pastor, Jonathan Cruz. Also for Grace Covenant Church in Sheffield, Ontario, as they look for a pastor and continue to bear witness to Christ in that place. May all of these learn Christ and proclaim him. We pray as well for our missionaries in Uganda, Charles Jackson, Christopher Verdick, James Fulkert, Mark Van Essendelf, Angela Voskul, Leah Hopp, Tina DeYoung, and for Tony Curto in Ethiopia. Here are prayers for these, our missionaries and the workers who help them. Gracious God, full of loving kindness and compassion, we are a weak and impoverished people who, if it were not for the strength and riches of your grace, we would flounder and fall away. O Father, renew us again with your word. Make us the people of Christ, your own possession. Heal us and bind up our wounds. Particularly, give ear to our prayers for this congregation and those we lift up to you, for Don, for Tom and Eduardo and Shirley, for Jeff and Linda, for Fawn and Bob, Tammy's family, Becky, Phil, Angie, Vicki, Caroline, Dominique, Karen, and others we name to you in silence. For our work to teach the knowledge of Christ, may we teach more people Christian knowledge and our salvation in Jesus Christ through the education of the church. And we pray we would have enough money to continue the ministry of the church. Draw our hearts to you and guide our minds, so fill our imagination, so control our wills, that they may be wholly yours, utterly dedicated to you, 
and then use us as you will and always to your glory and for the welfare of others. Father, by your gracious benefits to us through Jesus Christ, may your kingdom come and the new life of the Spirit fill the earth. In the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. seated. We come now to the reading of God's word. Let us prepare our hearts and minds to receive this God's word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, may it please you now to soften our hearts, open our ears, prepare our hearts and minds to receive your word, that it may take root in our lives, that it will produce fruit of repentance and growth in Christ. For we do pray this in his name. Amen. Our first reading comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 8. Listen now to God's word. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision... And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, 
which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him within his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, and when, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two great horn, with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. 
and at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. The Psalter response comes from Psalm chapter 9, verses 1 to 10, printed in the bulletin. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will be glad and exult in you. When my enemies turn back, for you have maintained my just cause. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. The very memory of them has perished. He has established his throne for justice. He judges the peoples with uprightness. A stronghold in times of trouble. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Our epistle reading comes from First Peter chapter two, verses nine through twelve. Again, God's word. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Our final reading, the gospel reading, comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter seven, verses thirteen and fourteen. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, 
and those who find it are few. The word of the Lord. God's people need comfort. You need comfort. Human comfort is always welcome, encouraging words, an arm around the shoulder, someone to stand by your side. There's also God's comfort, and it is on a much larger scale than human comfort. To know that God is taking care of the situation, whatever it is, is of much greater consequence because he is the Lord of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign God who, as Daniel says, removes kings and sets up kings. He is the ancient of days who sits on his throne and judges the nations. Comfort from this God is unstoppable. Human comfort may mean well, but it runs into dead ends or it is shut down. Nothing can stop God's comfort. It is comfort that rests on his good purpose and his almighty power. So when Daniel heard God's message from the angel Gabriel that the clever and ruthless king shall be broken, he had a word of comfort to give to God's people. And it is also for us because it comes to us through Jesus Christ and in Christ it is actually expanded. It is comfort that gives us hope and makes life in this world worth living as a Christian. In our lesson today, our reading this morning from Daniel 8, we hear that there is an end to the dangerous, wicked, blasphemous rulers and governments in this world, and that is a comfort. The church gets caught up in the battles of this world. That is what happened with the Jews during the crisis between Persia and the Greeks. Now, last week I told you that Daniel has roots in history, um, that might not be uh, a surprise for somebody who's, who's aware of the book of Daniel reading it, but sometimes Daniel gets kind of uh, interpreted outside of history or, or it jumped forward into another time, and we need to remember that Daniel has roots in history. Not history alone, Daniel is also God's word to us, but it is God's word spoken into the history of this world. The beginning of Daniel, chapter 8, is set in the epic battle between the Persian Empire and the Macedonian upstart, Alexander. Now, last week I included some of that history in my sermon, and I need to do that again today because it's a major part of our reading this morning. Now, the way Daniel tells the story is full of symbols, rams and goats, horns, 2,300 days. The ram was strong with two horns on his head, and it was fast. It charged towards the west and the south and the north. And verse 4 says, No beast could stand before him, and there's no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and magnified himself. And then all of a sudden, Daniel saw a billy goat with a large horn between his eyes approaching the ram. And the goat was enraged at the ram and charged full speed at it and struck it, shattering the ram's horns. Then Daniel says the billy goat magnified himself exceedingly. But it was not long before the great horn of the billy goat was broken and its strength was given over to four other horns that grew up where the first horn had been. And one of those horns grew much larger than all the rest and spread out to the south, the east, and the land of Israel. 
This horn magnified itself like the ram, but it even magnified itself beyond what the the ram did, magnified itself towards God. It was a very blasphemous and wicked horn indeed. Now, although Daniel's vision is highly symbolic, it's rather obvious, especially you might not think so at this point, but it is, if you know a little about what was happening with the nations around Judah in those days. Remember I said it's rooted in history. So let's think about, hear about that for a moment. The ram is Persia under King Darius and King Xerxes. In 492 B.C., 492 before Christ, Darius I, or actually a couple, three or four different Dariuses, but Darius I invaded Greece, which was west of Persia. Think of Persia today, generally where Iran is, and to the west is, is Greece. He fought several battles before being turned back across the Aegean Sea without being able to hold on to the city-states of Greece. So Darius uh, was the king of Persia, and he moved, advanced towards Greece, but was not able to get really a strong foothold there, and so he was pushed back across the Aegean Sea. Nonetheless, Persia exercised its power. It it showed that it was powerful, and it proved it was mighty, and, and it also revealed that it intended to conquer Greece. The goat is Greece under Alexander and his successors. He had several generals that succeeded him. Alexander was a brilliant and daring general with ambition to avenge Greece and defeat Persia. Alexander amassed an army with mercenary soldiers. His father, Philip II, was actually one of the first kings to to make use of a standing army full of mercenaries. Before that, at least in the Greek area, Greek area of Greece and Macedonia, Armies were temporary. They were seasonal. They were made up of the farmers, and so they would, they would go out uh, like Sparta and Athens would go out to battle and, and fight um, after they planted their crops, and then um, they'd have some battles, but then it's time to go back and tend the crops. That was a nice sort of thing because it, is, it, it set limits to battles, and, and in that area, they didn't uh, have standing armies. Uh, that was sort of a new thing, but Philip II created uh, an army with standing um, mercenary soldiers, and Alexander uh, inherited that scheme for having an army. He promised them riches, and he set out to to the east to defeat King Darius III and conquer Persia. But after the first major battle, he took a detour. So he entered into the land of Persia. There was a major battle. Then he took a detour and turned south and marched through Palestine and Judah and on his way to Egypt. Eventually, he came back around, continued on his way to the east, crushing the Persian army and conquering the Persian empire. As Daniel saw in his vision, Alexander magnified himself exceedingly. How do we know him? We call him Alexander the Great. It takes a lot to become known as the Great and to keep that moniker throughout history. But he's one of those who's known as Alexander the Great. However, at the height of his power... He died, and that was in 323 B.C. This is a conflict between Persia and Greece, two of the great powers in the world at that time. Last week I told you a bit about Persia invading Macedonia and Greece, and years later Alexander the Great pushing back at Persia. There's a Greek historian named Herodotus who tells the story of Darius and his Persian army crossing the narrow, narrow channel of water between the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea. 
And today, that area that, that, um, that Darius crossed uh, is within the borders of Turkey, but it is where the western tip of Asia Minor, the area where Turkey is and Syria and that, that's, that place, uh, those places, the western tip of that Asia Minor and then the eastern edge of Europe come very, very close to touching each other at this, at this spot. It's like where the upper peninsula of Michigan and the lower peninsula come close to each other by the Mackinac Bridge, and it was even a little more narrow than that. In 491 BC, Darius sent envoys to the states of mainland Greece, demanding their submission to his rule by offering him symbolic gifts of dirt and water. That's strange, isn't it? Why would you demand that? You'd normally demand gold, silver, or whatever. But you see, if the Greeks gave that to Darius, it was a way of saying that he was now the new owner of Greece, the land of Greece, and the Greek waterways. Now, some of the cities conceded to his demand, like Aegina, but others refused, like Sparta and Athens. In Athens, they even went so far as to take the king's envoys and they executed them by throwing them into a pit. So the next year, Darius sent an army to cross the Hellespont, that spot where Europe and Asia Minor came close together, and he set up a base on the eastern coast of mainland Greece. It was probably about 25 soldiers, uh, 25,000 25, <laughs> 25, soldiers, including 1,000 cavalry and 600 ships. The island cities of Naxos and others submitted to Darius's army. There were others like Eritrea that were defeated. And then he crossed the Hellespont north of Greece, and the Persian army sailed down to the Bay of Marathon. You've heard of Marathon. And in 490 BC, the Athenian army pushed the Persians back, and they were victorious. That was a major battle and really kept the Persians from advancing. So the Persian army returned to Persia. Now, needless to say, there was a rift, and that's probably a very mild word, between Persia and Greece. And about 160 years later, Alexander became the ruler over Macedon and the Greek states, and he set out with his army to the same spot that the Persian army had crossed over into Greece, but Alexander went in the reverse direction. He's headed east, and he crossed over into Persia. And once he was on the other side, he jumped out of his boat, and I told you last week, he took a spear and he hurled it into the ground on the Persian side, basically saying, this is mine, I'm taking it. Now, I've gone into some detail about the clash between Persia and Greece, and it's not simply to give you a history lesson. It's so that you can see that there was a bitter fight between Persia and Greece, and it went on for a few, couple hundred years. And God's people were outside of it, at least at the beginning. Darius, had let the, Darius I had let the Jews go. As long as they paid their tribute and didn't cause any waves, they were free to rebuild their lives. They did not instigate the Greco-Persian War. They didn't contribute to it. And even though the Jews had been captives in Persia, they had been released, and they were trying to rebuild their cities and their temple in Judah. God's people were not trying to conquer other kingdoms or extend their territory. So you might say they were minding their own business. That is, until Alexander the Great marched through the Holy Land and he claimed Judah for his empire. Yet even Alexander the Great did not try to drastically change their lives. He looked around, he came into Jerusalem, he looked around and went on his way. Judah was now part of Alexander's empire, 
but the Jews were more or less free to live as God's people. The Greek and Persian crisis was largely an outside conflict until a later Greek general came along named Antiochus. These are two empires attacking and trying to destroy each other all on their own. And there have been times when God's people have been invested in fights and conflicts and in other, with, with other governments and nations. That's true. The, the Jews sometimes were embroiled in those kind of conflicts, uh, partly from their own initiative. And Christians have too. The First Crusade was like that. Pope Urban II called for an army of people of, of his, uh, of, of the uh, Christian, well, the people who lived in France and uh, Germany and England today to go down to the Holy Land and take Jerusalem back from the Muslims. That was in 1096 AD. Noblemen and kings, monks, all answered the call. They led a variety of armies into the east. They besieged the cities. They fought the Muslims. They actually retook Jerusalem. Now today, there are a number of battles in society and international conflicts that many Christians say don't involve us. There have been some that have involved us, but there are many today that don't involve us, like the war between Ukraine and Russia. There are a lot of Christians who say that that just isn't our business. Or the proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Or even the political clash between the Democrats and Republicans. The Christians would say that's not our fight. Even though we might prefer rulers and governments that they have their own fights, they do have a way of pulling God's people into it. And that's what Antiochus IV did. He was one of the descendants of Alexander the Great's generals or successors, and he forced the Jews to line up behind him. The Jews could not sit quietly on the sidelines, not when Antiochus IV came around. Alexander had five generals who succeeded him. They divided up his empire. And these are the four conspicuous horns. Two of the generals sort of kind of were in the same uh, territory. These are the four conspicuous horns in Daniel's vision. In verse 8, those four horns that come up are referring to his, Alexander's successors. Two of the generals were Seleucus and Antigonus. And 150 years later, a ruler emerged from this line who was called Antiochus IV. He added a title to his name so that he could be called Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes is a Greek word referring to a divine manifestation. So Antiochus IV styled himself as a god. Verse 11 says this horn, or Antiochus IV, magnified himself even up to the prince of the, of the hosts, and that's God. Antiochus was not content with the Jews in Judah worshiping their own God. He marched his army down to Jerusalem in order to subsume the Jews into Greek worship and life. Antiochus IV went so far as to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem, and he set up an altar to Zeus in it with continual sacrifices offered to the Greek God. The pagan control and blasphemous worship is what verses 13 and 14 are talking about with the desolating rebellion. I think the ESV called it transgression. It's this desolating rebellion in the temple in Jerusalem. And then it talks about the 2300 days. It was that time when Antiochus removed the Jewish high priest. He established the abominable sacrifices on the pagan altar in the temple and this went on for a time until some of the Jews rose up, Judas Maccabeus, the Maccabean family, 
They rose up and defeated the Greeks in Judah and rededicated the temple in 164 before Christ, 164 BC. That's a period of about six to seven years. Antiochus pulled the Jews into his fight. And the same thing has happened with Christians. In Nazi Germany, Adolf Hitler demanded loyalty and submission from everyone in his nation, from the unions, the universities and their faculty, the media services, the business leaders, all of these different uh, organizations and from the churches. And there were some Christians who wanted to stay out of it, who really just wanted the politics to be that it's, you know, that let that go on, just leave us alone. But they could not because Hitler would not let them. And today there's a war going on to change what this nation believes is morally right and morally wrong concerning gender and marriage and sexual practice. And many of us Christians stand on the side, shaking our heads, amazed at the insanity of it all. But those leading the charge to re-educate us are not content with anyone staying out of it, especially Christians. We pull our children out of schools, we put our heads down and do our work, we avoid the hard conversations. But for the aggressors who want to recreate our hearts and minds, this isn't good enough. Just ask my wife, who had to renew her nursing license and was required to take two online courses on welcoming LGBTQ clients. But it was really about affirming gender and sexuality ideology. The nurses where she works, were already treating every patient with kindness and care, no matter who they were, because they're human beings. But that's not good enough to have a nursing license in Michigan. One of the courses she took was produced by Harvard University and asked what it's, it, one of the uh, leading questions was trying to determine what religious affiliation the person has, Catholic, Protestant, other. The course itself listed the words... Gay, a homosexual, gay, heterosexual, straight. Okay, it had those phrases, and it listed them over and over and over again. So you're having to, to go down the, the you know scroll down, and as you go, you have to answer the questions. And these these phrases are listed over and over again in different order and and uh, you know tr- uh, mixed around. And each time the word appeared, there were two boxes, just two, one that said good, and the other that said bad. And you had to mark one. You couldn't go forward in the test unless you mark one or the other. The course course taker was to answer them as fast as he or she could. It was just over and over and over again like a blitz. It's clear that her employer and the state and the Harvard test are trying to change the hearts and minds of the nurses. And this is a fight that will not allow them to sit out. Even if they have a, a different Christian position on these things. And it looks like it's going to be relentless. So here's the comfort from God for you. God brings it to an end. Antiochus brought the fight to the Jews. He set up this rebellious worship in the temples, in the temple. And the angel's message from God to Daniel in verse 14 is for 2300 evenings and mornings, 2300 days, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And then God's messenger Gabriel told Daniel that Antiochus shall even rise up against the prince of princes, against God himself, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. There is an end 
to the attacks on the church and to the fights between the rulers and the nations in this world that would pull us in. There is a provisional end, in other words, an end with a small e. Antiochus came to an end in 164 B.C. Another Persian king rose up and attacked from the east, dividing the Greek world in half, and that's right in the, in the middle of Antiochus' uh, empire. The bare-bones account is that Antiochus died while tr- trying to retake the land that he had ruled. The Jewish writing, 2 Maccabees, gives a more detailed version of how Antiochus died. And maybe it's embellished a bit, but it it makes the point very strong. This is what it says. The all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck Antiochus with an incurable and invisible blow. As soon as he stopped speaking, he was seized with a pain in his bowels for which there was no relief and with sharp internal tortures. And that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many and strange inflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence, but was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to drive even faster. He was in his chariot. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as it was rushing along, and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb of his body. Thus he, he who only a little while before had sought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and had imagined that he could weigh the high mountains in a balance was brought down to earth and carried in a litter, making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms, and while he was still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away, And because of the stench, the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. That's a very long way of saying he came to an end. (laughs) There's an end to those who attack the church, and it's God's end for them. Those who demand the church affirm their gender ideology will come to an end. God will bring this ideology to an end. But there's another end, and that's with a capital E. So there's an end with a small e, a provisional end. And then there's this other end with a capital E, the end. Jesus speaks of it in our gospel lesson when he talks about the two gates and the roads that pass through them. The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and then the way is hard that leads to life. Those roads are leading to these destinations, destruction or life. Each one leads to an end. God has set a final end for all of us. The end comes when Jesus Christ returns and he sits in judgment over the whole world, and everyone shall stand before him, and the rulers of this world, like Darius and Alexander the Great and Antiochus, also Daniel and God's people, as well as those who are pressing the new gender ideology, you and me will all stand before him. And God will end, with a capital E, the attacks, the ideological rebellion, and the persecution of the church. And then we will come to one end or the other, depending if we have faith in Christ or not. And those who go to the end of destruction, will. there are some who will go to that end, and there will be those who go to the end of peace with God. Jesus says in another one of his parables, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. This is an end that's full of life and peace with God under his blessing. Now let us not think that these two ends have nothing to do with each other. There's a relationship between the small E end and the big E end. 
The provisional end of malicious governments, the forceful attacks on the church are signs of the final end when the Lord will judge the world. All those little small ends, those, you know, there are lots of ide- ideologies that preceded us. We're not facing the first major ideology to, to really you know, uh, create a ruckus in society. There have been plenty others of those, and they come to an end. They, they are not troublesome anymore. Those, 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 the end of those things, or the terrible leaders like Hitler, those ends are a sign of the final end, that there will be a final end that will come. God brings an end now because all things will come to his final end. But when it, when it is not a fight that directly involves God's people, how should we respond? It's one thing to get pulled into it, now we've got to defend ourselves, now we've got to speak up. It's another thing, though, when there's the fight going on out there, like the ram and the goat attack, you know, banging on each other, and God's people are off on the side. How should, how should we respond? Well, some time ago, I talked with a Christian leader about this, and he told me we should just sit back with a big bowl of popcorn and watch the nations consume each other. Watch society go down in flames. The church should just mind its own business and leave the world to their own fights, is what he was saying. Well, his imagery startled me because it sounds like a contest you watch at a stadium. You know, you're up in the bleachers, you're on the sideline um, watching it. And it struck me how Amish it is. It's just an Amish way of living in the world. Are we called by God to be isolationists? The problem is, even if you think so, the problem is those in conflict have a way of pulling God's people into their battles. And that's what happened when Antiochus IV became king. Sometimes we have to choose sides in the world's battles because one side is more right than the other, or at least they are more right about the bigger issues. But even if we find ourselves in a position where we must stand on one side, or the other, uh, one side or the other in the conflicts of this world, we Christians are called to a higher purpose. We should not let the conflicts define our calling as Christians. We are going to be drawn into those. We will have to face and, and choose sides sometimes, but we always must remember we're called to a higher purpose. And that comes out in Daniel 8. God comforts us with the message in Daniel 8. There's an end to the conflict in our nation there's an end to the battles between the nations. With the gospel and faith, we know that our end is with Christ and it's peace with God. Jesus came to us here where the nations are in conflict, and he made a promise. I, I thought about using that as our gospel lesson, but I chose the other. But this is a promise that comes from John 14. He promised uh, to be with us by the Holy Spirit, and he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. But what are we to do? You know, we're comforted, and then what are we to do? Are we to sit back and watch what happens in the world and just enjoy our comfort? We're to bring the peace of Christ, the peace that he gives us, to the world. Now, most of us don't have the opportunity to interact on a national or international level to bring God's peace or his comfort to the nations in conflict. We don't have that opportunity, most of us. Some Christians do function at that level, and they've actually brought peace and comfort to nations in conflict. However, however, what most of us will see is other people's fights on a more interpersonal level. And these are where we can bring God's comfort and peace. 
Here's an example. My wife Heidi and I came upon a conflict once. We actually weren't married yet at this point. We went on a walk uh, in Omaha, and there were two cars stopped on the side of a residential road. Next to one of the cars was a group of teenagers, and they had surrounded a young man who was the driver of the other car. And the group of boys was pushing around the single guy and yelling at him. He was clearly escalating. Heidi and I saw it, but it wasn't our fight, right? Nevertheless, we approached the angry guys and stood near them, asking them questions. It's kind of strange now that I think about it, but we stood off on the side and just asked them questions. What are you doing? What's the problem? There are other ways to settle this, but we were, we were a presence, and we just stood there. We stood there for a while, and finally the group of boys gave up, and they kicked the single guy's car, got into their vehicle, and drove off. And the guy who was alone thanked us, and then he left also. Now, did those boys become friends and live peaceably with each other? I don't know. Kind of doubt it. Did Omaha become a peaceful place because we stepped into someone else's fight? No. But we did bring comfort to the one guy, to the guy who was on his own, and we shared the peace of Christ with those who were in conflict. The peace we Christians share with others shows there is an end to the conflict in this world. And more than that, there's an end that is peace with God through Jesus Christ. There is an end that is destruction, but there's also an end that is peace with God through Jesus Christ. And the comfort and peace we share as Christians is showing that end. Christ gives us comfort and peace so that we can share it with others. Let us pray. Grant us, Lord, not to be anxious about earthly things, but to love things heavenly. And even now, while we are placed among people and nations in conflict, to hold fast to your peace and comfort in Christ that shall endure. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, O Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Please stand. We confess our faith with the creed in the bulletin. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn as we come to the Lord's table is number 347, The Church's One Foundation.
Before we continue, let's pray for Steve. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would uh, take care of Steve, help him to uh, feel well. We pray that um, he would be able to uh, rest here and that um, your grace would be at work to, to uh, help him at this moment. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Is everything okay? I think we're okay. Okay. All right. Just feeling weak. All right. We come to the Lord's table having heard the word of God preached. Now we see the word of God, the gospel on the table. This is the joyful feast of the people of God. And scripture talks about men and women coming from east and west and from north and south and sitting at table in the kingdom of God. As we come to this table, we always hear the words of institution that this meal is set off and apart from, uh, from all other meals by Jesus Christ and his institution of this Holy Supper. We hear it also through the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul basically brought that tradition of Jesus' institution to the church in Corinth, and we hear it now. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread... And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also the supper, after saying, uh, the cup, after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Gospel of Luke tells us that when the disciples, after his resurrection, when they saw the risen Lord, at first they didn't recognize him, but and I've preached this, so you've heard it before. But it's when they sit down to eat together that they recognize the risen Lord. And he took bread and blessed, broke it, and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him. So we receive Christ as he makes himself known in Scripture, in Scripture reading, the sermon, and with the sacrament. Having again heard the voice of Christ in Scripture and sermon, let us now come to this table to receive the gifts that he gives us. All who have been baptized profess faith publicly in Jesus Christ and are communicant members of the Christian church are welcome to come and share in this joyful feast of our Lord. If that is not the case for you, we are glad you're here, but you should stay back until such time that you're visibly united with Christ's church in those three ways. Baptism, public profession of faith, and belonging, we call it communicant membership in this church, um, belonging to Christ's body. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for his salvation and life for us in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We do give you thanks, Almighty God, because you have created us. We would not exist without your creative work. You've created us in your image. You've given us a world full of good things. But most of all, at this moment, we give you thanks for sending your beloved Son, who, though he is equal with you, became a man lived among us as a servant of our salvation. He was obedient even to die on the cross so that we might pass from death to life. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. 
And therefore all of heaven praises your great and glorious name. And we join them in that praise, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. And now we pray that you would consecrate this bread and cup so that our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup may be for us a participation in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we do come to this meal with faith, the faith that your church has always expressed, even with that ancient line, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We, we profess that faith as well. And we thank you that even as there is one bread and one cup, so the church is one. And together with all your holy people, we have been united to Christ. We praise you and glorify you forever, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom all good things come, and who has blessed us with the life-giving Spirit. To you is all the honor and glory, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, we offer our thanksgiving with one voice. Together we say, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he also took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, whoever, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Eternal Father, we thank you for nourishing us with these heavenly gifts. May our communion in Christ strengthen us in faith, build us in hope, and make us grow in love. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Our final hymn is number 322, O Quickly Come, Dread Judge of All.
Good morning. Um, just a few brief announcements. We are not having CE today, correct? No, we are. We are. Okay. I wasn't sure because George wasn't here. It's going to be me. Oh, you're, you're teaching. Okay. Better than saying you're teaching. <laughs> I don't know why I did that. <laughs> That'll be good. Um, uh, and then uh, also, um, I just wanted to thank the Hannums for hosting our um, prayer meeting this past Friday. It was a wonderful time. Uh, if you haven't been to that, I would encourage you to uh, look at that. The next time it will be August 10th, at six, again, at the Hannums' house. The date and the people are wrong. Well, it's going to be the third Friday at the church. So. Third Friday at the church. Okay, I'm glad we got that settled. No, Julie Cowles. Third Friday. Stay tuned. Well, it'll be just like a dream cruise. Come from the east. Okay, what we want is for everyone to be wearing 50s attire and your classic car of your choice. Yeah, well, stay tuned on that one. Okay, sorry I brought that one up. <laughs> um, Please uh, be in prayer for the uh, Harvest Church. I know we've, we've mentioned this several times. Um, it's coming up in the next few weeks, and so uh, we do pray that uh, that, that would resolve and uh, God's uh, will would be accomplished in that discussion. Um, so just please be in prayer for that. And not only for the uh, trial, which is coming up, but also... Pray for healing uh, in that church. That's going to be an ongoing thing that will need uh, continual prayer for the next period of time. So just please keep them in your prayers. Uh, anything else? Oh, Hannah, you had something. I'm sorry. Yeah, so um, this is Robert's forwarded an email from Jake and me for the Chinese Education Freedom Fund. We're doing a Zoom session at an August For those who are uh, listening uh, remotely, um, Deneen, you sent an email out regarding the Christian Education Freedom Fund, uh, which goes to help support educate classical education in China from a Christian perspective. Um, so it's not just in terms of uh, the educational side of things, but strongly focused on the gospel. Uh, so uh, please be in prayer for that work, but then also check Deneen's Email out. This is a, there's some kind of a. It's just me and Jade. We're just, so because it's China, everything is word of mouth. So they don't have any, they have a website, but we are helping just put them out there more. So, so uh, Hannah and Jake Dutt will be um, having a discussion uh, at the end of August, you said? 
end of August. So look for that in the email that went out. Okay, Chris. Again, for those listening, uh, Ben, Courtney, and Seth. I knew I should remember that. Ben, Courtney, and Seth are going to Japan for about 10 days uh, to um, participate in a mission trip, so please be in prayer for them. Jack, uh, sorry. <laughs> or Barbara. Your nephew's name is what? Luis. Luis. Uh, Luis is uh, going to be having surgery, uh, the Hannum's nephew. Please keep him in your prayers. And then Linda. Charles. This coming Saturday? So this coming Saturday is, work, uh, is volunteer day at the church. Not work day, it's volunteer day. Light housekeeping, some garden work, trimming bushes, roundup in the, in the, all those weeds and forests growing in the cracks of our driveway. I, I would add to that, I've noticed some thistles growing in the lawn. And if kids want to go out and run around, that's, that's not a nice plant to run into. So they're, they've been chopped, but they're still there. If somebody has like a long dandelion remover or something, we can pull those out. They're like, it's not, I mean, maybe like eight or ten of them. at the church is volunteer day Uh, Amy was I'm sorry Annie was that your uh, that was your question okay anything else all right well uh, good enough we'll be dismissed thank you